Turn with me to Acts chapter 5. We've been going through the book of Acts here uh, for some time, verse by verse, and uh, we've gotten to Acts chapter 5 today, beginning verse number 12. And uh, if you'll turn there with me and follow along or uh, look at your device, uh, just engage with the text of Scripture. Acts 5, beginning there with verse number 12, the scripture says, And through the hands of the apostles many signs and wonders were done among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. Yet none of the rest there joined them, but the people esteemed them highly. And believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they brought the sick out into the streets and laid them on beds and couches that at least the shadow of Peter passing by might fall on some of them. Also a multitude gathered from the surrounding cities to Jerusalem bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits and they were all healed. Then the high priest rose up and all those who were with him which is the sect of the Sadducees and they were filled with indignation and laid their hands on the apostles and put them in the common prison. But at night an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard that, they entered the temple early in the morning and taught. But the high priest and those with them came and called the council together with all the elders of the children of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came and did not find them in the prison, they returned and reported, saying, Indeed, we found the prison shut securely and the guards standing outside before the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the high priest, the captain of the temple, and the chief priest heard these things, they wondered what the outcome would be. Then one came and told them, saying, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain went with the officers and brought them without violence, for they feared the people, lest they should be stoned. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest asked them, saying, Did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine, and intend to bring this man's blood on us. Then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. (coughs) Excuse me. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Him God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so also is the Holy Spirit whom God has given 
to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were furious and took counsel to kill them. Then one in the council stood up, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in respect by all the people and commanded them to put the apostles outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what you intend to do regarding these men. For some time ago, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody. A number of men, about 400, joined him. He was slain, and all who obeyed him were scattered and came to nothing. After this, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew away many people after him. He also perished, and all who obeyed him were dispersed. And now I say to you, keep away from these men and let them alone, for if this plan or this work is of men, it will come to nothing. But if it's of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you even be found to fight against God. And they agreed with him. And when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them and let them go. So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Father, thank you for the scripture And we pray that your spirit will help us as we think about it together today and show us, God, how that we can have the same attitude in ourselves of persevering faithfully to be those who bear witness to this message, even when it feels for us difficult to do so. God, we pray that you'll give us great grace from you. you. God, open our hearing. And God, help us just to be convicted as we live our lives of faithfulness to you. And we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, the apostles in the first century had adversity and pressure to quit almost uh, immediately. As we uh, read the scripture, we see that this is one of a number of times that initially Peter has been arrested and John have been arrested and the apostles have been Uh, the attempt has been made to intimidate them into silence and yet they have this unwavering confidence that they're not going to be quiet, they're not going to uh, quit proclaiming the name of Christ and I've thought about that as we go through Acts, what we see and as I've said, this is a little bit of a recap of some other things that we've talked about already but they what they had, it's not even accurate exactly to call it faith. They were eyewitnesses to what Jesus had, what had happened in the life of Jesus. They had experienced this. They had witnessed the resurrected Christ. And this is what John, the apostle, wrote in 1 John to describe the experience that he had, he had personally had. He said, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, He says, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. So his description to them about what his experience was is, look, I was with Jesus, and he was. He's the son of Zebedee, the fisherman who's been called to follow Jesus. He said, I witnessed and observed and handled the flesh of this human who was dead but came to life And he says, this is what our testimony is to you, is that Jesus Christ is alive, that we walked with him after he was dead, after he was placed into a tomb, and he he was brought back to life. 
And so, of course, if this is their experience, they will face death, they'll face uh, difficulty and trials because they know what they encountered and they know whom they have followed. They're eyewitnesses. And Jesus, uh, I thought about us, and we've talked about this, that our situation, we fast forward now 2,000 years to where we are. And we're like the person that Jesus described when Thomas, we we call him Doubting Thomas, but he said, unless I put my hand into the nail print, unless I handle him myself, I'm not going to believe. And Jesus appears to him and he touches Jesus' hand in his nail print and he said to Thomas, you believe because you've seen, but blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. And that's us. We believe on the basis of their testimony. But their testimony was firsthand. They experienced Jesus. They walked with Jesus. They passed that along. And our faith is confident because of who they uh, were and what they, they've said. And we're that person that Jesus talked about in this passage if we have come to believe in him. And of course, as we follow Jesus, there will be at times for us pressure to be silent, to keep quiet, not to speak up, not to acknowledge that we know Jesus. To be, for us, it's really not like a question of are the authorities coming to arrest me or uh, is somebody going to break in here today and silence us or take the microphone and put me in handcuffs? You know, I'd be shocked stupid if that happened to me today. But there's social pressure that we'll find ourselves in at times to be quiet and not to speak up and not to acknowledge Jesus is everything to us. And that's where I think in our culture there's a danger. The danger is different for us. But the danger for you and for me is that we'll just be hidden. That our faith will be so secret that nobody even really suspects it about us. And, and we're called just like them to be witnesses of what we know, to speak of Jesus that, and the experience that we have had. It's like the scripture writer said, he quoted an Old Testament passage where the writer says, I believed and therefore I spoke. And the writer in uh, the New Testament, the Apostle Paul says, we also believe and therefore speak. So if we believe, if we, we've become convinced in the resurrection of Christ. We've become convinced of the guilt that was ours and that Jesus Christ paid this penalty for us and is raised from the dead. That is the most compelling thing in our life. And we believe and therefore, as a consequence of it, we speak. We give a testimony to others. We tell the story, and all of us have a story to tell if we really know Jesus. And we're I've heard other people say, you're the authority of that story. Nobody knows my journey and my story better than me. Nobody knows your story better than you. And you have authority over that story. And we have the, uh, we've been told, tell it. Tell it to others because other people need to know that God is real and that God is at work in the, in the world. Even if it introduces friction, it's worth it. And that's where we want to uh, think today. It's worth it, first of all, the scripture shows us to be used by God. The apostles were clearly being used by God. Tim Keller, uh, who uh, many pastors and other believers admired, went to be with Jesus recently, died of, uh, after a struggle with cancer. But many of his books have been very helpful in his 
messages. He was pastor of a church in New York City. And he says the gospel was spread in the early church by personal conversations and life examples, not through programs. He says not even primarily through preachers. So it was an as-you-go faith. So the last thing Jesus said is, as you go into the world, you will be witnesses to me. You'll tell this story. And that's the way the good news was spreading in the first century. We were talking about this earlier, my wife and I. Like the, I don't think that the apostles would have recognized the institutional church in the form that it currently holds. I don't know if they came to church here today, they would be like, this is like what the church is now? I don't think it's how they experienced life in community together. I'm not saying our form is wrong, because I don't think that our form is wrong. But it's fair to ask if our modern expressions of Christianity hold on to the most important form and the most important convictions that they had. It's fine that we come together in the way that we do to hear messages proclaimed and to worship, and our worship has been wonderful today and moving to offer up our hearts to God, to proclaim Him as we sing and as we draw near to Him. But it's a fair question to say, is the way that church is worked out, us, the body of Christ, as we go into the world, does it have the same impact and importance that it would have had to them in the first century? You hear people talk about mission drift. And this is the question. Churches are formed around a premise and an idea, and that idea is that God is exactly who he claimed to be and that Jesus is everything he said he was, but do we hold on to the idea that it is our responsibility to take the message of Christ with us to our neighbors and to the people around us and to make him known? Mission drift means de- deviating from the basic premises and commitments that anchored the early church. You know, just putting this on a practical level, we have to figure out what outreach looks like in our day. Churches that stop reaching out and sharing the message of Christ, I've said this before, their lifespan is shortened by the lack of that energy and commitment. So churches where God is going to work and flourish are places where we, we figure out, okay, what, how do we take this message now and speak it to others and share it with others? And so, like, you're going to be asked when you go into the foyer at the end of this service to stop long enough to look at a sign-up sheet and to say, how does my life get plugged into a way that my church is trying to engage its community? And the reality about what the world is like now is that, uh, like when we drove out of our neighborhood today, I told Frankie, I'm like, you see what the commitment of people in our neighborhood is today, right? It wasn't going to church. It was like mowing lawns and loading up, and you saw all kinds of activity. None of it was indicative of the idea that people were coming to church, except for Steve and Robin, and they live in a part of the neighborhood that we don't live in, so I didn't see them. But, but we've got to say, how do we build bridges to this community? And if it means like uh, decorating our trunk and giving out candy as a way of connecting, not the way, a way, one of many ways 
that we say, mission drift is us going, that's not me, that's somebody else that he's talking to. It's like committing to finding multiple ways that we are speaking the reality of Jesus to our neighbors. And I can't, I will do my best to do my part. But that what that Tim Queller, uh, Keller quote says is that uh, one pastor or one program isn't going to do it. It's like everybody's saying it's me. It's, I have a part in this. I uh, use my circle of influence, and I connect with people, and I'm part of this. So that's what we can see with the apostles is that they were their lives were available, right? They were used by God. And that's the idea for us. We're used by God. Our life is his life to, to dictate to us. He is Lord, and so he gets to say what our lives are supposed to be focused into. It's worth it even when it, it attracts hostility. As I say, you know, I've said this a, a number of times. In North America today, you are much more likely to experience soft persecution. So our feelings may be hurt. Somebody may... Uh, not agree with our point of view about uh, truth and what it means, and but we're not really that likely to face incarceration. We still experience religious liberty in this country, uh, unlike almost anywhere else in the world. We have religious liberty, and an aspect of that means that we're, we're, we kind of will be left alone. And most of the uh, difficulty that we face, it might tend to be relational more than anything else. It might tend to be social more than anything else. Currently, you know, the, all those things can always change historically, but where we are right now, it, it's our faith. Uh, we're free to worship according to our conscience. It's interesting that the Christian movement in the first century attracted indignation. And you see it in this story. They were attracting hostility. Why? Because what they were doing was not harmless to people in authority. The religious authorities of their day did not consider what they were doing harmless. And sometimes I think we don't attract opposition because the people around us can't see me uh, see anything necessarily threatening in our message. We're too quiet. And so consequently, we don't attract opposition or friction even because our witness is easily dismissed or not heard. And that certainly wasn't the case in the first century. They ran into the spirit of Antichrist quickly. That's what you see in this narrative is the spirit of Antichrist. Religion will be dismissive of Jesus. And people will be dismissive of Jesus. But their witness couldn't be over, overlooked. And if we never face any opposition, this is a good question for all of us, me included. If we, ne- if we just go through our life, we follow Jesus, but we never attract any opposition from the people around us, it's a fair question to ask if our witness has perhaps fallen silent. Is that why? Because we don't speak up. Our witnesses fall in silent. The passage, when we think about following Jesus, even if there's opposition and friction, it's worth it because people need life-giving words. They need life-giving words. The, uh, I love how the scripture, look at verse 19 in uh, the passage here 
in chapter 5. It says, they, Peter and, and the other apostles, it doesn't identify specifically who, but they are incarcerated. And at night, an angel comes. They've been put into the common prison, which is the temple guard. And this is the authority that the uh, Sadducees and the high priest had to uh, incar- incarcerate these men. And so they're locked up, and at night an angel comes and opens the door and lets them out. And I like what he says to them. He says, uh, go and stand in the temple, verse 20, and speak to the people all the words of this life. Speak to them all the words of this life. And people still need to have a clear definition about what life means, and many people are trying to figure it out. Even when they don't acknowledge that need. Sometimes people seem allergic to the message that we have. They still need it. I needed it. I've shared before, I was a young adult, 24 years of age when I came to faith in Christ. And I didn't want to hear that message. But there came a point in my life where I did. There was a point in my life where my crisis, my stupidity intersected with a deep need that I didn't know what to do with. And thank God there were people in my life, and especially people in my family, my sister, my mother, who loved me enough to share Jesus with me. And sometimes we think those people in our family whose hearts seem so hard don't want to hear us. That was me until I did want to hear it. So we've got to be the people who are willing to be that presence for Christ in our family, with our friends, even when it feels like it attracts division or causes division or opposition. Because you don't know when the, the circumstances of an individual, individual's life are going to intersect with their need and openness. And they say yes to, to God's great provision of forgiveness and peace and pardon. If we don't attempt those conversations, it begs the question of how convinced we really are of their importance. And I think we, we do think they're important. But it's like when we commit to sharing our story with people, it's evident. It's possible to be what others have described as practical atheists. Have you ever heard that phrase? Practical atheists. It's like we're not atheists. We believe in God, but nobody would know it because of our silence, because of our unwillingness to to speak up. I don't think talking about Jesus is the only marker of vital faith, but it is a marker of a vital faith. The apostles consistently said, we cannot stop talking about these things that we've seen and heard. They said, we're not going to. You can threaten us, you can beat us, you can put us in jail, you can stone us, we're not going to shut up. That was their conviction. How do we use our voices? I think even sometimes about the way we use our social media voices. And it has so much reach. Of course, I'm a joker. I have a sense of humor. And I like to cut up and make jokes and stuff. But our social media presence, even Facebook and whatever else you're on, I don't know, can be a way that we are bearing witness to Christ or not. And sometimes the or not part is what concerns me. It's not that we're not saying anything. It's that the things that we say sometimes, I said, I posted this yesterday on Facebook, they sound more like an insult than an invitation. 
What we want is to communicate grace. We want our speech seasoned with salt is the way that the Bible puts it. We're communicating grace to the hearer. And so sometimes, it's, since social media is so big with a lot of people, you may be one of those rare individuals now that says, I just don't pay any attention to it. Praise God for you. I wish I was more like that. I just think it's kind of part of our experience now, and a lot of people are there, and I think part of our witness is let's use our voice in those spaces well to convey grace, to, be, to show people the attractive aspect of what it means to follow Jesus, not the hateful part of it, because they're going to get enough hate all the other places in the world. I'm not saying we're not convicted of uh, certain truths and realities. Of course we are. But people need to experience the good news of Jesus through us. The good news. It is good news, right? It's good news that I was dead and alienated from God, but now I'm alive because of his goodness. Because Jesus allowed himself to take my place. And the Holy One died for all of the unholy ones to bring us to God. That's good news. And so we have opportunity to use our voice in those spaces. G.K. Chesterton, uh, Chesterton said the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. He said it's been found difficult and left untried. I think that's true. One of the reasons that our, you know, our experience of modeling this and living this out, it's not that it won't work. It's that when we do it, we find it's difficult. It causes me to have to think more, behave differently, align my life with the uh, patterns of, of life that I experience and see in Jesus. So he says, it's not that it won't work. It's that when we try to do it, we find this is a little more difficult than just doing what I want. And we see in this passage that it's worth it to follow Jesus in difficulty, and it will be costly. So the, I talked about this. I, you know, what's, what are our threats? Uh, I don't think the biggest threat facing us in our current culture is government. I don't think that. You may disagree with me. I don't think atheism is the biggest threat facing the church in our day. I don't think evolutionary theory is the biggest threat facing the church in our day. We may say all of those are nominal or external threats that we all face, but I don't think any of those thing, uh, things would represent the biggest threat. But I think the average Christians seeking after comfort and our aversion to difficulty, and our aversion to laying our life down is a much bigger threat than the government, evolution, naturalism, any external threat. When we see what Jesus said to describe what our life as followers of him should look like, he says, the, the, he said, uh, the authorities in this world lorded over the those that follow after them. He said, but it won't be so with you. But whoever wants to be great among you will be a servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. And over and over again, what we see from Jesus is he said that the person who really gets what the kingdom of God is about is the person who lays their life down. The person who stops living selfishly for themselves and for their priorities 
except when your priorities are the same as God, uh, God's priorities, then that's okay. But otherwise, he's, the scripture says, you, as you follow me, whoever wants to come after me must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow after me, Jesus says. So we know that there's a part of what being a follower of Christ means that will always be costly. It's always going to, if, if our goal is not to be inconvenienced, we will be an ineffective follower of Jesus. It's worth it even if people misrepresent us. I left off part of the passage. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but serve and give his life a ransom for many. It's uh, worth it even if people misrepresent us and the disciples, each time they're confronted by the authorities, it's always that what you're doing is wrong. Were they wrong? No. They were the only right, sane people around. They were the only ones that really understood, but they're constantly being accused of the opposite. The disciples were portrayed as pestilent, unhelpful to the order of culture. Does that sound familiar at all? It should. That's basically how Christians are portrayed today. We're officially labeled as holding views that are harmful, even though we're only saying about God and man and reality what God himself said first and nature itself affirms as we think about ethics and morality and our neediness and God's solution in Christ. This is, I thought about this passage in Scripture in, uh, in John 3. This is the conversation with Nicodemus. He says, this is the judgment. And that word really means, some translations will say crisis. Some say condemnation. The word really means predicament. This is the predicament that light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than light because their works were evil. We think, why don't people want to hear what we have to say? Well, that's why. Because the truth about Jesus brings every person into a crisis, a predicament. And in that predicament, you have to decide, do, will I give up, surrender, put my confidence in, in Jesus Christ, who said, I am the truth, the way, the truth, and the life? Or will I choose my own path and my own life, and my own way? And the Bible says, this is Jesus speaking to Nicodemus. He says, here's the predicament that people are in. That light has come into the world in Jesus, but he said people prefer darkness to light. They prefer life as they define it to life as God has revealed it. So we'll be misrepresented sometimes, but we are not. We didn't make this faith up. We inherited it from firsthand witnesses. We inherited it. They saw it, said it, and we inherited it and, and believe it. It's worth it when we find true truth. Now that's, I know, silly and redundant sounding, but it's what you see in the passage, verse 33 uh, and following in the text. They, when they heard this, they were furious and took counsel to kill them. Well, I'm sorry, backing up a little, uh, verses 29 through 32. It says, Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. God of our fathers raised up Jesus. He's just repeating to them what he's already said and what they themselves had experienced in uh, recent history. He says, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree, him God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior. That word prince is interesting. It means leader, pioneer, 
Uh, it's the same idea that you find in the book of Hebrews when it calls Jesus the author of our faith, the author and finisher of our faith. It's the same word. He's the one who blazed the way. He's the one who shows us what God had in his mind all along when he brought the good news about Christ to you and me. So that's true truth. And, and Peter says, look, we are not going to stop saying this because it's true and we can't say anything else if we said anything else we'd be liars and and so he says we're going to continue to up uh, proclaim this message whatever it cost us it's life giving it's the entry point for a new experience of life that's what I found is that it was where life began when I was 24 and repented of my sin to the extent that I even understood what that meant and put my faith fully in Jesus to say, I need something. I need, I don't know what, I, totally. But the what I heard is that this person died to forgive me and this person was waiting to receive me. And that's what I was open to. And whatever else was involved with it, I figured I'd learn it as I went along. And I have been learning it all this time. But it's like what I've got there was the life that was missing. Something that was not in me, I got right then. And have, have still continued to experience God's life in his mercy and kindness to me. Though I don't deserve it, he still gives it to me day after day after day. Kindness, goodness, mercy. So if we, and Peter, I think it's interesting, not Peter, but Paul here, and not Peter, Peter in his preaching says, uh, we're witnesses to these things and so also is the spirit whom he has given to those who obey him. He's explaining something to these people. He's like, what we have is the Holy Spirit. They, they have just gone through Pentecost and that experience and they say, here's what makes our life different than your life. Our life is different than your life because the spirit of God has come to inhabit us and make us alive. And so, why would Satan hate that message so much, I wonder? He's going to marshal all the forces of hell to oppose that message because it's true, because it's how God has revealed himself in Jesus. And they knew that Jesus was the Messiah, and they knew that he was the answer to the void in every human heart, and they would not sit down and mind their own business. They said, that's not what we're doing. It's worth it, and it takes commitment. This is such an interesting part of this passage, Gamaliel. Uh, I've shared before Vance Havner. I don't know how many of you would ever have heard of Vance Havner, but he was a mountain preacher, and I've got a couple of his books in my office, and very profound preacher, but uh, also very um, blue-collar kind of grassroots, easy to understand. He had a message that he preached called Gamaliel the Appeaser. And we think, huh, is, who is this guy really when we look at him? Gamaliel, teacher of the law, respected by everybody. Is, is what he says about Jesus and the disciples and their movement correct or not? Well, that's an interesting question. Jonathan, it would make an interesting Sunday school qu uh, question probably. Well, what about Gamaliel? What, is he a good guy or a bad guy? What is he? Well, when we look at it on the, on the surface, we would say that's a very good common sense reply. These other movements happened, Judas and Judas and their followers after the founder 
of the movement died, just went out of existence. And so just treat these guys, Jesus, like Judas and Judas. The problem is Gamaliel had to, had to, because he's a contemporary of all of these events, lived through the life and ministry of Jesus. Right? That's a fair assumption that Gamaliel was present when Jesus was walking the streets of Jerusalem, heard the message, knew everything about it. Knowing that, how can his conclusion be, let's just be neutral about this Jesus person? Let's just wait and see what happens. Were the disciples waiting and seeing? No, they weren't waiting and seeing. They knew that Jesus was resurrected. And what did Jesus say? himself he says if you're not for me you're what against me who he who doesn't gather what scatters he says he's not calling us to non-committal anything he's calling us to be all in he's calling us to say yes to him and arrange our lives around the reality that Jesus is Lord so Gamaliel I would say Vance Havner had it right he compared him to, um, what's the guy's name that went to the, uh, went and spoke with Hitler? What's his name? Chamberlain, yeah. He says Gamaliel is essentially Chamberlain, if you know your history. Chamberlain goes and goes, this Hitler's not such a bad guy. Well, I don't know what to say about that, other than like it was a very wrong uh, assumption. And that's what uh, Vance Havner says that. Uh, he says he's similar to Chamberlain here. He's trying to hold this uh, neutral space, and we're not called to uh, occupy neutral space. We're called to be all in. And so the uh, other idea we see in this passage is that it's worth it and the reward is joy. I like how the apostles, even though uh, the the council, which is like the Sanhedrin, the high priest, the uh, politically, the, uh, theologically powerful people, um, conclude certain things they say we're still going to do what we know is right and they allow themselves to be beaten which usually was like 29 lashes and they say they would beat you like 10 times on your chest and the remainder of the stripes went on your back and they beat you to the maximum am- amount that the Romans would allow as a way of threatening and intimidation, and that's what they did to these guys. They beat them and then released them, and how, what did they do? The Bible says they went away rejoicing that they were considered worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. That was their response. Joy. So joy is something that can't be taken away from us by trials. It's not something that's just on the surface. It's deep inside of us. It's in our hearts. It's nestled in there very close to peace is where it is. If you have peace, it's easy to have joy too. It's great to be liked, but joy is, isn't dependent on, dependent on being liked. It's great to feel others' approval, but joy is still available even if people don't agree with us. It's great to have relational peace, but Jesus doesn't always bring peace. Sometimes what Jesus brings is friction and tension and division because people we care about will think our faith is crazy. That's what you see. Jesus says, don't suppose I came to bring peace to the earth. I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. And in that context, he says, I'll put people of the same household won't see things the same way. 
And there will be division between parents and children. Why? Because your allegiance is toward Jesus and theirs is not. And so sometimes we live with that. I don't think we um, misuse that kind of tension. I don't think we blow it up and make it worse. He's just saying, as a matter of fact, the reality will be if you stand for Jesus in the middle of a family where you are the sole person doing that, it will sometimes cause tension. And you still do it because Jesus is Lord. And we can have joy in our circumstances knowing who he is. Perfect circumstances aren't necessary to have perfect joy. That's good to know. Perfect circumstances aren't necessary to have perfect joy. Jesus says, I've told you these things that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. So when uh, things are difficult, when our peace is threatened and challenged, he says, I've overcome the world, just trust in me. Maybe one of the biggest threats we'll face is just being intimidated into silence about Jesus and not because of some sinister alliance of powerful religious forces, as we said, but it may simply be our reluctance to be vocal about what we believe. Honestly, it's, I think, a pressure that everybody except for dishonest people can relate to. It's a pressure I relate to sometimes is the... uh, the pressure of being silent because socially you think it may be awkward to have a witness for Jesus. The disciples saw this as a primary aspect of their ministry, to tell the story, to go and tell. Sometimes I think we, we are uh, somewhere between come and hear, come and see. That's a good approach. Invite your friends to church. Invite your friends to hear the gospel. Be in, that's a way. Come and see. But the, what the disciples were also doing was going and telling. They didn't just say come and see. They also uh, went and told. And that's part of our calling. I saw data this week. I shared it on social media. That Facebook is about, about the only place I really am because I'm an old person. But I saw data this week that indicated among those born in the 1990s, only 18% said they went to church weekly. That's down from people who were born in the 1930s who said they went to, at that time, church. Uh, 60% of them said weekly of people that were born in the 1930s. There is a disturbing trend in our country. Of those that were uh, born in the 1990s, it said that only, uh, that 40% said they never, ever went to church, never, ever. And so I think about that trend. I wonder how much of it reflects the church's cavalier attitude toward evangelism and our sometimes insular behavior. You know what I mean by insular? It's like we've turned our focus in here and we've forgotten about the people out there who live and walk in darkness. And when Jesus came, he said, upon the people that sat in darkness, what? A great light has shone. Great lights appeared. So he has appeared, and I think it's easy to forget that the church at its best is a missionary movement. Every authentically saved Christian has a testimony of amazing grace. You have a story. You have the authority over that story, and so that's a good place to begin. When we do uh, new member cl- uh, training here, the on-ramp class, one of the things that we ask people to do is to write their testimony out. 
uh, for a couple of reasons. One is because we want to know that people that become members here really have a relationship with Jesus because we believe that church is comprised of regenerate people. That's the real church is people that know Jesus. But then also because it's a way of training people to tell their story. And a, a testimony just is, you heard me share mine in this message today, basically my life before Jesus, how I came to know Jesus, and the difference that Jesus is making in my life now. So part of the challenge here is like, tell your story. Another part of the challenge for some might be to say, what is my story? Do I have a story that's like that, of like my life before Christ, how Jesus came into my life, the difference that he's making now? If not, that's a, a that's something to engage with and to say yes to the forgiveness and the pardon that he offers to everyone. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord, the Bible says, will be saved. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's not one righteous, not even one. So forget about it if you think that, nah, I'm the exception, I'm okay. No, the Bible says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be rescued, will be saved and forgiven. And so it, it, all of us that, that really have crossed over from death to life have a testimony of God's amazing grace. Having faith like the apostles means that we're part of God, uh, the conversations about God that are specific. Their conversations were specific. They weren't just generic. I mean, it's like I, I think sometimes I want to be kind to my neighbors I want my neighbors to experience me as a kind person when I'm around them, but just kindness isn't enough. It just the, them to know, hey, Bobby's a kind person. I hope they think that. But just being kind isn't enough. I also want them to know, I believe, specific things about God because I think the way you come into relationship with God is based on specific realities. Easy to get a handle on, but specific. And they lived lives that were in impacted by Jesus' resurrection, directly impacted in their personal experience. And even though we're thousands of years removed from that, we still can be transformed by its reality. And so we must be altered by that reality if our lives are going to have effectiveness among the people of this day who, no matter what they say, still need to know that there's hope and that there's a way that that their life can be different and have the meaning it was created to have in relationship with God. I want to uh, pray for us. We're going to have a time of commitment now. And this is a time of response. And it, it may be that you need prayer. I'll be happy to pray with you now uh, during a service and also any time during the week at uh, the church uh, employs me to be uh, available and to minister and to serve and um, But if you have a need, we're going to stand in a moment and sing our close of the song, invite you to respond today to the gospel or in any way that you uh, have a need. Father, we're grateful today for the good news that we've heard. And it is good news, God, that there uh, is a way out of darkness into light. There's a way to be forgiven. And there's a, the truth of life with you forever. If we simply yield and look to you and cry out to you. And so we pray, God, for courage today just to be obedient. Give us courage to be obedient in our relationships and among the people who uh, you put in our lives. 
all over the place, God, that we'll be uh, sharing the gospel as we go. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me as we sing?